Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on Franklin Radio 102.9 FM. We are Mark and Kim. How are you today, Kim? I'm good. How are you? Good. I am good. so good. Always happy to talk wine with you. Yeah. And-, and we're still not back together in the same room, but, you know, hopefully we'll be vaccinated soon and we'll be able to do that. We'll still uh, talk wine, Kim, no matter That's what. Right. It'll be nice us. to finally have a glass of wine with you. So first article, Kim, we want to talk about was in the drinkbusiness.com. It was about the most understood wine terms, six most understood wine terms in the misunderstood, wine world. Misunderstood. Misunderstood wine terms. And we always try to stay up to date of what's, uh, I guess, confusing people. Yeah. but I love some- these kind of things because they're just like... Things that regular old people who like to drink wine, but don't tend to think about it like we do. You hear these things that are these terms that are thrown out at you and you're like, what the heck does that mean? And am I going to really sound dumb if I ask for that meaning? So we are here for you, listener, to explain some of these things so that you don't have to feel like you're a complete novice (laughs) when you go into the wine store. You say sound dumb or, or sound geeky. It's terms you hear out there in the wine world. Don't be afraid of questioning yeah. someone if they say one of these six terms yeah. so ask questions we love it and they were saying in this article is are these terms that are misunderstood are they mis being misused is it just market hype that you hear yeah. them all the time so we'll start out kim with vegetal mm. as a wine term and this one to me has different meanings it's it's you say something in a wine is you're tasting is vegetal. It means many things. Mm-hmm. It can be many things. Your vegetal and my vegetal is totally different. Yeah. So how would you explain to the listeners, Kim, the overall thing of vegetal in a wine? This is one of those words that I feel like you don't necessarily know. Is this a positive term or is this a negative term? And I feel like we have a lot of these in wine speak where those of us who are in the trade and our wine professionals, we kind of bandy these words about and we have meanings for them that we understand what what we're talking about. But to the ear of someone who doesn't deal with these things all the time, it's a little hard sometimes for those of us on that other side of it to realize whether the things that we're saying sound positive or negative. And I feel like vegetal is one of those terms that we can use and often use in a positive kind of way. But if someone who doesn't read wine books like we do, because, you know, we're the wine geeks, that if you're talking about, oh, I had this glass of wine that tasted vegetal, like I can absolutely see the people like, like, I don't do I want to drink that? Yeah, was it V8 like juice? it's a term that can be very, very off-putting, but there are so many things that are positives that can fall under the umbrella of vegetal. So just to kind of describe 
what vegetal means, certainly what vegetal means to me is kind of like what it sounds like. Like it smells or tastes of vegetables, frankly, or like anything green and growing. So I would say, think of the description of something as a vegetal wine more in terms of fresh, springy, green, you know, just as things are starting to pop out of the soil and, you know, you get that spring aroma in the air, whether it's like mowing your lawn for the first time or like grassy hay kind of smell or like fresh peas that you've just picked from your garden. Any of those kind of flavors, dill, oregano, when you have fresh cut herbs in your kitchen, you know, those kind of things all fall under the heading of vegetal. And some are herbaceous and some are grassy, but there's always this sort of green component. So if you can use your imagination and think of what are all those green smells? And I tend to find that they're very fresh and very fragrant and sometimes have a little bit of like a flowery kind of thing to them. But like that's, I I feel like the most positive sort of spin on vegetal that I get. And I really love when I get those aromas and things. So I get them a lot in some Spanish white wines. I get them a lot in Sauvignon Blancs. Sometimes I'll get them in unoaked Chardonnays. But then there's the flip side of vegetal where things start to smell and taste a little bit like canned vegetables or overcooked vegetables, I would say. It's like when you cook asparagus for too long, or when you cook green beans for too long, those can also qualify as vegetal. So there really is this very broad spectrum of what is vegetal. And I like to focus more on that herbaceous side of it. So those, you know, fresh herbal smells as opposed to, oh, this is a can of green beans that I just opened up. And why does my wine smell like it? Like how you're saying the positive negative thing, because it's, you might not like the style of wine or vegetal in your wine or aroma or flavor. A lot of times it's associated with unriped grapes. Mm-hmm. So it could be a flaw, which is a negative thing, or it could be the actual key component of how you identify a wine from a certain area. So South America, in Chile and Argentina, you get a lot of green vegetal in like Cabernet. And mm, mm-hmm. especially in Chile, I, in I, get, it me, all, I get it all over the place in Chile. It, for me, though, that draws a negative in my thought because I don't like the style. So, but it's not a negative. That's, it's also key. It's the style. Yeah. And the positive thing is I can ID that's where it's from. I can tell right away that's where it's from. But it's like totally the same thing for like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. There's this like really distinctive characteristic of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc that a lot of people say that it smells and tastes like grapefruit. But then other people say there's more of these kind of green elements. And for certain producers, I get a lot of like green bell pepper or jalapeno pepper or those kind of aromas and flavors that some people just don't like, but it's very, very distinctive based on where those wines come from. And I'm glad that you brought up the regional differences because there are so many different flavor variations that you get depending on how ripe is the fruit when it's being made into wine. And then also just like, you know, like what's the climate in a particular area? Maybe those grapes just can't get to a particular ripeness level in one place that they can get in another place. So like Sauvignon Blanc in New Zealand is very, very different from Sauvignon Blanc grown in Sonoma because they're so different. So it's under, it should be looked on as one is bad and one is good. 
just that they are different from each other and they have different characteristics based on where they're from. And you mentioned herbs, Kim, and I think mm. for me, vegetal components in a wine are easy to identify, whereas herbal, I always fight with, you know, I'm sensing something herbal, but I can't put my finger on what it is. Yeah, so, honestly, so, I'm the same way. Like but, I can say, oh, this is like an herbaceous kind of wine. But as much as <laughs> as much as I grow all this stuff and as much as I cook with it, trying to get me to figure out, oh, this is the difference between this smells like thyme and this smells like oregano. Like, forget about it. <laughs> like, No, it's just not going to happen. And it's a so, good thing. These are two great points of things that are misunderstood because we oftentimes misunderstand them when we're tasting to try to identify them. So right. to tell people about them, it's a scary thing. It's almost yeah. like that acid thing. When you mentioned acid in wine, if you mention herbal or vegetal in a wine, it, it kind of scares people. It yeah. throws them off. Like, why are you saying that about this wine? But I also feel like if you go to a wine class or you go to a wine tasting and you're sort of, you know, getting something that's reminding you of like your herb garden, but you can't put your finger on what it is, it's okay. <laughs> like even those of us who've been doing this for a really, really long time, we can't do it sometimes. Sometimes we can, but sometimes we can't. And it's not saying anything poorly about your wine tasting skills that you can't say like that's parsley versus cilantro. It's like, don't worry about it. Like, <laughs> you know, sometimes if you can just say, I smell a green something or a vegetal something, honestly, I feel like that's enough. Yeah. So let's talk next, Kim, the next misunderstood wine term. They're saying astringent. Mm, and, this is a good one. And I feel like yeah. this is a term that we haven't really seen. Like, this is a show. very like <laughs> modern, I feel like tasting term, right? So like 20 years ago, nobody was really describing anything as astringent. And it's something that has, I feel like really come about in more modern tasting notes, but it's also extremely confusing for the consumer. Because how do you, like, do you know what astringent feels and tastes like? Like it's, it's like a really loaded word. Yeah. And it's to me, it's like, is it a mouthfeel or is it mm -hmm. a simply a presence of tannin or bitterness in a wine? It can be a few things. I think that's yeah. why it's misunderstood. Yeah. And I think there's this difference between a taste and a texture. And I like to use, as you know, I like to use these in my wine class classes that there's a difference between what you're tasting and what you're smelling in your wine versus what you're feeling on your palate. And astringency is definitely all texture, all a yeah. feel in your mouth. Yeah. Tannins, but it's also, acid. yeah, the tannins, but it's also difficult too, because we usually associate astringency with tannins and tannins produce this feeling on your tongue and on your palate, like a drying sensation. So a lot of wine writers like to describe it as if you're drinking a cup of tea that has been steeped in water for too long, you know, you leave the tea bag in there for too long, or you wring out the tea bag and you get those more unpleasant sort of textures in your tea, or if you let it go cold and then you drink it and it feels fuzzy and sort of unpleasant on your tongue. Those are astringent tannins, but they also have this other effect where they dry out your mouth and when it comes to talking about wine, we use the word dry to mean something else. So it's, it can be very, very confusing when you're trying to describe a wine and use the word 
dry because it could mean these astringent tannin kind of feel on your tongue where all of your saliva somehow has just disappeared. Or like we use dry as meaning a lack of sweetness. So those two things are very, very different. And yet we often tend to use the same word to describe them. So it can be very confusing. So that's one of the reasons why I kind of like the term astringent in that it separates the dryness of the tannins from the dryness of the lack of sugar. But it's a term that I don't think a lot of people are familiar with. And it can be kind of confusing because it is this sort of newer term. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark at his website, franklinliquors.com, and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. And as always, you can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. So welcome back to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we have been talking about tasting terms and about how some of these... A lot of these terms can be very confusing to the novice or beginner wine drinker, or even someone who has a fair amount of experience in tasting wine. So we talked a little bit about what does vegetal or herbaceous mean. We just talked about astringency. And now there's this other term, which is kind of very hot in wine speak these days called reduction. And it has to do with chemical interaction between wine and air. So a lot of it has to do with oxygen or a lack of oxygen getting into your wine. I think a lot of this term was exposed during the screw cap era when mm. screw caps really became popular because people yeah, opening totally. up a screw cap wine and you smell a little sulfur because that wine has been sealed so tight, there's no airspace in, in a screw cap wine. Mm -hmm. So the lack of no oxygen exposure creates this term reduction. It's a reductive wine. It just needs time to really get some oxygen on it to open up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it does smell like burnt match. But generally, over time, a wine that is reductive opens up and yeah, that just goes blows away. off. I so I think, think it's that misused that is, because yeah. it's really a short term thing to right. me. I think describing it as like what it smells like when you light a match honestly is very, is brilliant because that's exactly what it smells like. I also feel like maybe sometimes we're paying a little bit too much attention to this concept. Like, I think it's one of these like higher level wine tasting terms that if you're just someone who opens a bottle of wine to enjoy with dinner or to sit around your fire pit drinking with your friends, I don't think that this term even really comes into play. I mean, it does on different levels. Like I've been in a lot of wine tasting classes where this term is bandied about all the time. And I think you're right that at the beginning point of us seeing so many mainstream wines under screw cap, that this was definitely an issue. So in the early 2000s, when Australia and New Zealand decided, okay, we're going to get rid of corks and we're going to bottle everything under screw cap, there wasn't as much experience in knowing what the heck was going to happen over the course of like a year or two years under screw cap for those wines. So they really erred on the side of caution and put a little bit more sulfur or a little bit more of maybe argon in the top of those bottles to completely rid them of oxygen. Because we're always told that oxygen is 
the enemy of wine. And then if you have oxygen in your bottle, it's going to make your wine go bad and it's going to make it start to turn brown. And, you know, oxidation is something to be completely avoided. So it seems to me like at the beginning of the screw cap phase, producers went the complete opposite way. And they were like, no oxygen. We need to completely make sure that our bottles have zero oxygen in them at all. And that's why we are at this point where reductive is a term now, (laughs) because we see so many of these wines that maybe have been overly treated to avoid any oxygen exposure whatsoever. I think this is one too, Kim, I think a lot of times is misused Mm -hmm. for a wine that just simply is what they would say tight they would say reductive. It's it to me. But I don't a, feel like tight and reductive are the same. Like tight that's, is That's tannins. what I'm saying. A lot of times yeah. people will say a wine is reductive when it's really just a wine that just yeah, needs time no. to open up, right? So I think I see it misused that way. Yeah, I think you're totally right because from my perspective, reductive is an aroma thing, whereas tight is a texture thing. It's tannins. Might be acid but it's certainly not an, something that you can smell. Whereas I feel like those reductive aromas that burnt match smell, you're like, once you blow, blow out a match, that's all an aroma kind of thing. Yeah. So the more I was reading this article, they were saying most misunderstood, but most of the time, I think a lot of these are just misused. Hmm. Be- not they, I don't think it's because they misunderstood. I think people try to pair things together when they shouldn't. Does that make or sense? Like, like pass off an issue as one thing when really right. it's something else. Right, right. Yeah. And maybe the fact that the term reductive is so misunderstood and so not understood by people outside of the industry, it's one of those things that can be bandied about that I like to equate wine terms sometimes with um, automobile advertising. Like I know nothing about cars, zero about cars. So when I see a car ad and they're like, such and such of a drive and this many cylinders. I'm like, you could be telling me anything and I would not right. know. But then, you're, then you're going to turn around and say it's someone else because you heard it. And you know, <laughs> right. Right. So, so, so I feel like a lot of these wine terms are like that. It's like yeah. we can throw this stuff out there and nobody knows what it really means. And I feel like that does a disservice to wine drinkers because if it's not, if you're not like talking about what's really going on in the wine, I'm like, like, this is just not, nah, (laughs) I don't, I don't want to be that person, you know? Well, this next wine term, I was excited to talk to you about Kim, because they said barnyard or farmyard in wine talk is very much misunderstood. And we talked in the past a few shows ago about funky wines, right? Yeah, funky, funky smells. And I had a, kind of an experience with this where in the past, people have always expressed that Italian wines like Tuscan, mm-hmm. like Chianti are always these barnyard or farmyard aromas or yeah. earthiness. But I'll tell you, Kim, I've been studying a lot of Italian wine and there's not one time that I've come across where they've described the wines as barnyard or farmyard. Who's doing the the describing? The actual Italian grape description. Mm. They'll say it's cherry, it's this, it's that. Ah. Never seen the term barnyard used for areas where I see people associating that with. So, Well, I I know why. What's your theory? So yours is, so you're talking about specific grape varieties, correct? Right. It's so this is because this is a flavor aroma that comes from winemaking. 
not from the grape varieties itself. Right, right, right. But right. in general, if you're talking about the grapes that go into Chianti. Yeah. But if right? you're talking about Sangiovese, you're not, you're talking about the grape itself. So you're not talking about how someone handles right. it. Right. The earthy, the, the earthiness that. But comes I, out I don't, from... I have never seen earthiness described anywhere. Like even Pinot Noir never gets described as earthy. Whereas there's tons of mushroomy Pinot Noirs out there. But if you were to right. look at a description of what does Pinot Noir, what type of wine does Pinot Noir produce? Nobody says earthy. Or barnyard. Or barnyard. Right. But I think you're completely on target that there are so many of these Italian wines that produce this sort of funky, almost animally. And this is where it's, I think, good for people to understand that there is a differentiation between what is the flavor of the grape versus the hand of the human who is making the wine. So in the location. Yeah. The, but the, the location kind of goes in with the, the grape. grape. But I think that so much of this kind of funkiness is production. Like it's not where, okay. Yeah. Maybe you can convince me. Well, I, I so know. I understand think, what you're saying. Like some places. It's yeah. misunderstood then. Like how, if someone tells you, if you knew nothing about wine and I told you this wine has an aroma of a barnyard. How is that misunderstood? Because I think that you can understand that as being like, okay, that means that the winemaker did something either wrong or their environment is unclean. And so you've got like all of these other sort of funky things getting into your wine, which is leading you to have these unclean, dirty cow, right. <laughs> cow right. smells fine. If you look at it from a chemical perspective, it has more to do with the yeasts that are used or the bacteria that are in the environment. And and again, you lead, now you're leading towards positive and negative again. Right. Right. But so. I mean, if you don't like those smells and flavors in your wine, even though somebody tells you, you know, this is a $200 bottle of wine. This is how it's supposed to smell. This is how it's supposed to taste. This is what the winemaker wanted it to be. If you don't like it, then why should you buy it? And I think that's where the misunderstanding, like why this has fallen into this misunderstanding category, because I feel like this is the one of all of these things that is most open to the interpretation of, well, okay, this might be the right personality for this wine and the right personality for this particular region, but I don't like how it smells and I don't like how it tastes. So I don't want to drink that wine. Right. So yeah, this one's a tough one. This yeah. one I feel like is really a tough one. It's misused to describe. I don't, I'm, how can I oh, say this? Okay. No, I can also see. Yes. I think where you're going with this is that sometimes it's overused to explain away um, sloppy winemaking, perhaps. Yeah. In, in a way, it's, I think people associate, like you were saying, people associate it with grapes. But like you said, there's so much more to do with it. Yeah. That can cause it. You know, yeah. And it leads to it. So, and I don't know that I necessarily associate I, it with grapes. Like, I, I, I guess do that know was my this point aroma. early on yeah. is saying you, you don't see it. It's never described for the group. No. So exactly like you said, that, I guess yeah. that's where I was going. Yeah. I didn't really bring up my point, I guess. No, no, I think but, you did. And I don't think I've honestly ever thought about it because you're absolutely right. When you think that when you're, we like, see when all you're these shopping, lists of grapes, right? Yeah. So like you see like this is what Pinot Noir 
typically has the personality of, and this is what Chardonnay has, and this is what Sangiovese has, this is what Garnacha has. And we have all these long lists that give us these typical aromas and typical flavors that wines made from these grapes should produce. And you're right. Never, ever, ever does it say like, we'll smell like a horse. (laughs) Yeah. And that's kind of where I wanted to go because we started with vegetal. And you could say to me, you're in the Cabernet article, uh, excuse me, in the Cabernet aisle and you want a vegetal cab, right? I can associate that. But if you're in the Cabernet aisle and you say, I want a barnyard, no one says no one relates that to a grape but Whereas right not the grape but, but to a producer to or a varietal but to a producer or to a region absolutely right, right. yes so this is why it's misunderstood yes this long this is, way of getting this is cool it. this is this is why i like I to have these just, conversations with you i think we confused the listeners a little on that <laughs> we, I we myself might where i was going with it but anyway, but you know we, what we've learned something today so that's good Let's move on to the next term, Kim. Mis- okay. Misunderstood. Misunderstood. Term. Term. Reserve or reserva, which we've talked about a lot when we've talked about wine label terms. Labeling. Yes, we have. And this is definitely misunderstood and right. misused mm-hmm. a lot in this country, especially. Right. So if you're a longtime listener of ours or you've come to some of our classes, especially our label classes, you will have run into this. Um, because Mark is quite passionate about U.S. labeling laws, and, and and I really like to get into European labeling laws. So it really depends on where that bottle is from. So if you are if you are drinking a wine or buying a wine that is from a, a particular area of, say, Italy or France or Spain, especially, and you see the word reserva or reserve on the label, that actually means something. And it has to do with aging requirements. Regulated. Regulated by the government. You know, there are very specific rules in place that wineries have to follow in order to be able to put that word on their label. Whereas in California, in South America, there's no such law backing up what that word means. So anybody can put the word reserve or reserva on their label if they are, say, an American wine Um, or anything outside of those regions that have laws really governing what they can put on the label. What's difficult for the consumer is that you don't know necessarily what those regions are that have those laws behind them. So that really makes it, I think, very, very difficult from a buyer's perspective, because you see the same word on a bottle of Rioja, that's on the bottle of something from the Central Valley of California. And you don't know necessarily that there is- You're kind of tricked into thinking it's a special wine. But it's hard because if you don't know these things, then you don't know where that word has a a specific meaning and where it's just being used as a marketing term to try to get you to buy the wine. Yeah. And it's not to say, where it's misunderstood, it's, it's not to say that a small producer in California has- two batches of wine and he picks out one he thinks is best and he calls it his reserve and sells another one at another label. Which to does him, happen. Yeah, it to him, happen. that is their reserve. That is yeah. their best. But there's no government agency or anyone checking that there is any difference or any regulation difference between his reserve and his regular. Whereas right. in Italy and other countries in Europe, they're regulated based on aging requirements where it says you must age it for this long. It must be aged 
this long in oak and this long in bottle. And that is regulated. So you know if you pick up a Reserva, it is exactly aged the way it's supposed to be versus right. in America. So it is very much misunderstood. And I think of all the ones on the list we've talked about, I think this is the biggie of all yeah. of them. I agree. I agree. Because a lot of the other ones are more nuanced, whereas this one is very cut and dried of in this country, it means one thing. And in this country, it means something else. So, but you know, like you, I said, like you, said Kim, you don't know, but if you like Italian wine or you like Spanish wines, this is something you want to learn or research to find out what the requirements are. So you can right. enjoy So the it. info is there, but that does, it does take a bit of work on the consumer's part. And I completely agree with you that this is very tricky because two wines from two very different regions are using the exact same word. And so how, yeah, how do you differentiate between the two? Yeah. Let's move on to the last one, Kim. Oh, this is this one gets me. We <laughs> want to pick one of these lists that I am extremely passionate about. It's this one, and it's so like esoteric and geeky, but I don't care. Well, let's variety. Let's talk about. It. All right. So the word variety versus the word varietal, and oftentimes you'll be reading wine reviews or wine blogs or wine class descriptions, or anything. And these two words will be used interchangeably, but they're not. Right, <laughs> not the same like, thing. <laughs> I have such like <laughs> an issue with this because I'm like a word geek and please don't hold it against me. And I'm sorry. Variety is a noun and varietal is an adjective. And that's the most like simplified and succinct way of describing it. So Cabernet Sauvignon is a variety. Pinot Noir is a variety. Chardonnay is a variety. But if you're describing a bottle of Chardonnay, you can say, this is a bottle of varietal Chardonnay because it's got all Chardonnay in there. But you can't, or you can say, this is a varietal wine, you know, and then in parentheses, it's made all from Pinot Noir. But you can't, or you're not supposed to linguistically (laughs) say, the varietal of Cabernet Sauvignon is found most predominantly in Napa, California. It's like that it works because I think that like standard English has sort of assumed that those two words are interchangeable, but being um, a bit of a word geek that I am, they're not. <laughs> yeah. So variety is a noun and varietal is an adjective. And varietally correct. Yes. Oh, that's a good one. Yes. So if you're taking a wine class or if you're reading a description of a particular wine and like something like Sauvignon Blanc is a good one for this one because Sauvignon Blanc is one of those great varieties that regardless of where you plant it across the world and across different sort of climactic zones, it really, there's a lot that is similar, whether it's cooler climate or warmer climate. And there's always similar things, whether you're in New Zealand or whether you're in California or Chile or France. So when you're doing a wine tasting and you have a Sauvignon Blanc in front of you, there are all of these things that you might be able to pick out of it, whether it's grapefruit or whether it's minerality or whether it's a grassiness or a green peppery, like we talked about earlier. And you can describe this as this is a varietally correct Sauvignon Blanc because it tastes like you would expect a Sauvignon Blanc to taste like. We find this in Cabernet too. Like you get a lot of uh, very similar flavors from Cabernet, whether it's from Bordeaux or whether it's from Chile or whether it's from California. And we do describe that as like, this is a varietally correct Cabernet because it smells like 
currants or blackberries or violets or sometimes, again, that green pepper. But that's a great word, I think, when people are learning about different grape varieties to try to figure out, like, this is what this grape variety is supposed to smell and taste like. It's varietally correct. Yeah. I always try to find wines that I feel if someone wants to learn a grape. Yeah. That's it's, great. It, and over the years, it's harder and harder to, to really find ones that stand out as good examples, I mm. think. Do you think that's like a climate change kind of thing or from like a winemaker's perspective? Yeah, I think it's a winemaker A lot of winemakers are, are, are going towards around. making similar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Blending and, yeah. you know. To me, it has to be 100%, you know, unmanipulated type of mm-hmm. thing to be correct. But I feel like there are some grape varieties that always stand out as being yeah, like, this Chardonnay, is what I Cabernet. am. Cabernet, yeah. yeah. I mean, Riesling is that way. I feel like Zinfandel is that way too. You know, there are some of these grape varieties that have such forceful personalities that really can describe them as this is what is, this is really what is at the heart of what this variety tastes like. I used to always get upset early on when I was learning wine tasting and someone would give me a wine and I'd say, oh, geez, this must be a Cabernet. And then they say, okay, mm. so this is a Cabernet Merlot Zinfandel Petit <laughs> blend. I'm like, how do you expect me to learn a grape? That's so not you, fair. Yeah. The yeah. idea is to learn the grape and you're thrown in things that are 20 different grapes, you yeah. know, but it might have 50% of Cabernet. I want to know 100% Cabernet and then I'll learn 50%. Those Cabernet. blends, they'll get you. Yeah. But anyway. Variety versus varietal. So. So those were the six most misunderstood wine terms. I hope uh, our listeners got a little out of it, Kim, and we didn't confuse people more. That's not our goal. We just want to put these things out there and fight with each other and get the (laughs) points across. So, And if anyone has questions or if this was confusing, please drop us a line on our Facebook page, The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are happy to clarify and revisit uh, some of these topics. Thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. And we have been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Please feel free to leave us your questions and comments, and we might even mention them on the air for you. You can find our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes, and we look forward to visiting with you again next week. Cheers. Bye, bye, bye.